And today we're going to be continuing our, in our series called Redefining the Good Life. Oh, I'm sorry, CP Kids. CP Kids, uh, you guys can, this is the last week of CP Kids, am I right? I remember that much. <laughs> Just didn't remember to dismiss them. <laughs> So today we're going to be talking again about the good life. What is the good life? We pro- all probably have our unique spin on what the good life is, that, that life that we're all dreaming about. And what we're trying to do over the course of this series is to redefine it from God's perspective. From God's perspective, what does it mean to live the good life, to enjoy the good life? And that's what we've been doing over the last, I think, eight weeks now. And today we're going to talk about a really important aspect of living the good life. And I'll bet that if, if all of you were being honest... Whatever your definition of the good life is, it involves money. And you know what? God's definition does too. Jesus talked more about money than he did just about everything else. And so today we're going to talk about money. And the simple idea that I'd like you to remember today is this. Your money or your life. Your money or your life. When I was about 11 or 12, I can't remember exactly how old I was, but we were living in, I grew up in Milwaukee, sort of by um, the, the freeway by 70th Street, just right by I-94, just uh, south of the freeway there. And I was riding my bike one day, and I was riding along the frontage road towards 70th Street, where there's an on-ramp to get onto I-94 eastbound. If some of you might be able to picture exactly where that is. I remember exactly where I was when this happened. And I remember looking out of the corner of my eye and I saw something over along a guardrail and, and there's some bushes there or something. So I parked my bike and I went over and I was fishing through and all of a sudden I happened to glance up and I saw two guys running towards me and this was like sort of on a cul-de-sac. It was, is this, there was no houses there and these two guys were kind of running towards me like this conver- converging on me. They were bigger than me. They might, probably were just you know, 13 or 14. I was a little kid. And they were, wear, they were dressed like ninjas. <laughs> I remember this vividly. And be, I'm just trying to process, like, what is happening here? And before I could even think about what's happening, they're, they're on top of me. And one of them pulls out a gun and points it right at my head. And he says, your money or your life. I'm not lying. This happened. And I said, I don't have any. I mean, my heart was pounding. It's, it's never happened to me before. And we didn't live in a great neighborhood. But, it, it, I mean, there were much worse neighborhoods than ours. This had never happened. And so... I said, I don't have any money. They're like, get up, empty your pockets. And they kind of patted me down. And when they realized I didn't have any money, they said, let's go. And they took off running. And, and I got on my bike and I got out of there. And as I was riding home, a couple things occurred to me. Number one, ninjas don't use guns. <laughs> so they weren't real ninjas. I know that. In fact, I had just, this was like right around when the Karate Kid came out. I'd just seen the Karate Kid. And I thought, the second thing I thought was, why didn't I use the crane? It wouldn't have mattered. And then the last thing I, 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 that occurred to me, and it didn't occur to me in the moment, but I, I distinctly remember the gun that he, this kid was pointing at me had one of those orange caps on it. It was definitely not a real gun. These kids were just having fun at my expense. Of course, they probably would have taken my money if I had any. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because I want you to know that God tells us more than a few times in, in his word your money or your life. The difference is that God isn't wearing a mask. God isn't angry. God doesn't need our money. And God doesn't use fear to get us to give our money away. God uses joy 
In fact, when God says, your money or your life, you know, you know when a thief says your money or your life, what he means is, if you don't give me your money, you're going to lose your life. If you give me your money, you can keep your life. But when God says your money or your life, what he means is that if you're willing to give your money away generously, you, you don't get to keep your life, you get an even better life. You'll get even more life. You'll get a new kind of life. I'm going to give you a sneak preview of the passage we're going to look at this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 12, we read this. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of the eternal life. Remember we talked about eternal life just a couple weeks ago? God is saying you can take hold of it now in the present. And then in, down in verse 18, we read again. They, that's, that's, we're going to find out that it, that's talking about us. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There it is again, this idea that we can take hold of life. We can grab onto it. It's something tangible that we can experience right now. We don't have to wait until Jesus returns. We don't have to wait until we pass from this life into the age to come to experience this life. We can taste it now. God is holding life out to us. He's holding joy and peace and hope and security and confidence and freedom and transformation. He's holding all of that out. He's saying, here's a life that is free of guilt and free of shame and free of regret and full of joy. Take it. Just take it. And all we have to do is grab it. But unfortunately for many of us, we can't. And the reason that we can't take hold of this life is because we're holding on to something else that we're not willing to let go of. So I'd like to read from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-10. through 10. This is where we're going to start this morning. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his apprentice minister, Timothy, who is a leader in the church, and he's instructing Timothy how to lead the church and how to lead himself. And this is what he writes. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. And we're going to pause there. Now I'd like to begin by asking you, what is wrong with money? The answer is nothing. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing bad about money. The problem is us. One of the most misunderstood and misquoted verses in the Bible is verse 10. Notice it does not say, that money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. What it says is that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So what that means is that our problem is not money. Our problem is our hearts. Our problem is with our desires. Our problem is that we love the wrong things. Money is neutral. Money is not evil. It's neutral. But our hearts are not neutral. Our affections and our cravings are not impartial. And every single one of us have fixed our affections on something. We're all being driven by something. 
We are all driven in life by intense desires. And some of us are driven by an intense desire for comfort or security or pleasure or status, all of which many people think can be had with enough money. And so I want you to hear these words. Those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation, into a trap, he says, and into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's pretty harsh language, isn't it? Don't you think that's pretty strong language? About just the desire to be wealthy? What is that all about? What kinds of senseless and harmful desires plunge people into ruin and destruction? What are we talking about? Well, first of all, the desire for wealth, just the desire for wealth is an insatiable desire. And by, by definition, an insatiable desire is impossible to satisfy. You will never satisfy that desire or craving. You will spend your entire life working to satisfy that desire to be wealthy and you will die unsatisfied. Because when it comes to money, the more of it you have, generally speaking, the more of it you want. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, the author says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity or meaningless. In other words, the person who desires wealth is a senseless person. They they will harm themselves and others to get more wealth. Not only that, but the desire for wealth is founded on an illusion. It's an illusion. And here's why. Wealth does not lead to security. Wealth does not lead to health. It does not lead to love or generosity. Money will never lead to satisfaction or lead to happiness. It won't protect you from sorrow or suffering or death. And most of you, if not all of you, would probably agree with that. But some of us live as if wealth can lead us to experience those precious things in life. But don't we know better by now? I've had young men come to me over the years and say things like, I want to be wealthy someday so that I can use my wealth to help others. And while that sounds like a noble desire, the problem with it is that they wanted to be wealthy. That's the problem. And I have yet to meet a man who delivered on that, who wanted to be wealthy and made it their goal to be wealthy and actually treated their wealth the way that God prescribes in this text. I've never met a man who's done it. But here's who I have met. I have known plenty of people who were wealthy and actually did treat their wealth the way that God intends but they never desired to be wealthy. That's not what drove them. Wealth never drove them. God drove their life. God was their goal. Their wealth was just a gift, and that's exactly how they treated it. They never said that they earned it, and they gave most of it away, and because of that, they are able to take hold of life, this life that God's talking about, this life that God is holding out to us. In addition, the desire for wealth leads to anxiety. Most of us have experienced that to some degree, right? Because if we are fixed on how much we have and how we can get more, we will naturally be fixed on keeping what we have and we're going to grow increasingly worried about how we might lose all the stuff that we have, all the wealth that we have that God has given us. 
And we can start obsessing over what-if questions. Listen, generosity never focuses on what-if questions. But greed does. And there's a huge difference. We begin asking questions like, what if we lose our home? What if our kids don't have enough for college? What if we don't have enough for retirement? What if our car breaks down? What if, what if uh, he needs braces? What if this investment tanks? What if I lose this account? What if I lose my job? If you think that more money will save you from all of that anxiety, you're in trouble. It can't. It never will. I don't know about you, but I hate worrying about losing what I have. I hate that. That worry never leads anywhere good. I would much rather be content and thankful for everything that God has given me. And I would rather hold on to my possessions and my money and even my relationships loosely. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And, and greed, of course, is one thing that a desire for wealth almost in, in, inevitably leads to. And if you desire to be rich, you will by default focus more and more on yourself and what you want and what you need and what, in your, meeting your financial goals and what you can do to make more and more money and so on. And I think we've all seen or maybe even experienced what greed can cause people to do. I'm a coach for the New Berlin Soccer Club, and a couple of years ago, two soccer moms were uh, indicted for or charged with embezzling $80,000 from the New Berlin Soccer Club. One of them was the president, the other one was the treasurer. These are just soccer moms. One of them, um, they, and the question I asked was, did they really need the money? And they didn't. I mean, embezzlers rarely need the money. They spent the money on everyday things. They bought pet supplies. Uh, they went to restaurants. They bought groceries and gas. They used it to pay their mortgage and utility bills and spa services and things like that. They found charges to Home Depot and Gander Mountain and NFL.com. I mean, <laughs> this is what they used the money for. Just everyday stuff. The average income in New Berlin is something like, it's, it's like over $60,000 a year. These are soccer moms living in a relatively affluent community and they are not immune to greed and neither are you. And now they're full of regret. And that is why in this letter to his apprentice, the Apostle Paul warns Timothy with such strong language. He says, don't get caught up in the desire for wealth. It leads to senseless and harmful desires. It can ruin you. It can destroy your life. And please don't say to yourself, I'm not greedy. I would never do that. Just just be careful. Because according to Jesus, greed is not something you can self-diagnose. Okay, according to Jesus, greed is something you have to be very careful of and watch out for because it's the kind of sin that sneaks up on you. It's not like many other sins. People who are committing adultery and looking at pornography, they know what they're doing. People who are Um, lying, know that they are lying. 
from gossip to lust to murder. We know in our hearts that we're guilty, but that's not how greed works. Greed is almost impossible to see in yourself. So if I were to ask you today, I I mean, I bet if I were to hand out a, a, a closed survey to all of you and ask, do you crave money? Do you want to be wealthy? Are you greedy? I would expect 90% of you or more would say no. This is not a problem for me. I'm normal. I'm not like that. I'm not even wealthy, so how could I be greedy? <laughs> right? But here's the point. Greed always values possessions over people. And that, my friends, is a rejection of the cross of Jesus. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, where he died for the sins of his enemies, we see that it is better to give than to receive. That is what Jesus is screaming from the hilltop. It is always better to give than to receive. Here I am giving my life for people who are not my friends, but will be. Do you believe that it's better to give than to receive? Let me put it to you this way. Do you measure your success in life by what you give or what you receive? Do you measure your value by your income or by what you give away? Because that is why Jesus said, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. That has nothing to do with your value. God measures our success in life not by what we have, but by what we give. So why don't we? Why don't we measure success that way? I'd like to continue on in our passage this morning. We're going to skip down to verse 17. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, Paul continues. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their uh, hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now the first thing I'd like to, excuse me, the first thing I'd like to point out to you about this second part of the passage is Paul now is shifting his um, teaching from those who want to be rich to those who are rich. And I know that most of you in here, if not all of you, would probably say, I'm, excuse me, moving around a little too much here. I'm not rich. And the reason we think we're not rich is because we only compare ourselves to the people in our bracket. That's what we do. We're, that's how we've been conditioned. The people in our social categories, the people in our small groups, the people at work, the people in our neighborhoods, those are generally speaking the people who we compare ourselves with, and we will always be able to find someone with more, and therefore we'll always be able to say, I'm not rich, they are. But that, my friends, is not how God (laughs) defines wealth. It's just not. The people in the early church who Paul's writing about were not rich by our standards. They were people who had just more than they needed. The average, quite a few, probably the majority of people who were going to first century churches were living week to week, day to day. 
Many of them weren't sure exactly where their next meal would come from. Okay, they didn't have they didn't have savings accounts. They didn't have that. They didn't have reti- They weren't saving for retirement. That didn't. That was a f- totally foreign concept to them. That's not who they were. In fact, if you have, I mean, by today's standards, if we're talking globally, which certainly God is here, if you have more than one spigot or faucet in your house that produces clean water, we have eight in our house, including outdoor spigots or faucets. You're in the top 15% of the world's population. But also notice that God doesn't say that rich people should stop being rich. It's not wrong to be rich. It's not a sin to be rich. You shouldn't feel guilty for being rich. That's not at all what the text is saying. It says that rich people should not set their hopes on riches, but on God. It says that rich people should be rich towards others. In other words, don't stop being rich. Start being rich towards those with less than you. Start living a simpler life. Is that because God needs our money? No. That's because God wants our happiness. God wants us to be happy in Him. In the simple things that He provides every day for our enjoyment. He wants us to be happy in our relationship with him, in our relationship with others. We can never let our luxuries become necessities. He wants us to take hold of life. How can we do that? Well, this, this is a very practical passage. It gives us very clear instructions. The passage says a few things about those who have more than they need, which I would say is probably most, if not all of us. What he says first is don't be haughty or arrogant. He says, don't become proud. Don't look on people who have less than you. Don't look on people who have less than you. I remember hearing a story about a mayor of a major city, and he and his wife were attending a fundraiser at some five-star hotel in the city. And as they were leaving the fundraiser that evening, there were some, a bunch of construction workers doing some work on the hotel grounds. And all of a sudden, they hear one of the construction workers shout out, Hey, Jane! Hey, Jane! And the mayor's wife, it was Jane, she looked over and she goes, oh, hey, Jim, how you doing? Hey, it's great to see you. And the mayor turns to his wife and he's like, who's that? He's like, oh, that's, that's Jim. She's like, he's like, well, how do you know him? She said, oh, we used to date. And the mayor said, you used to date him? I mean, don't, don't you know, I mean, can you imagine if you would have married him or stayed with him, you would have been married to a construction worker. And she said, Yeah. And do you realize that if he would have married me, he probably would be mayor of this city? <laughs> That's arrogance. That's looking down on someone who has less than you, who has a, a lower social status than you do. I mean, if you ride around this city, West Dallas, if you ride your, drive your car, ride your bike, or take a walk, you're eventually going to see some worn-out, weathered, raggedy-looking person sitting or standing at the end of a freeway off-ramp with a sign that says, you know, something about they need work or they need food or they need clothing or something. What do you think about when you see people like that? Let me tell you something. If an arrogant person looks at those people and here's what they think. They think, you know what, that person's probably made some poor choices in their life. They probably deserve what they're getting. I can't trust that person. 
how can I trust that person with my money, with my gift? Who knows what they'll do with it? They're probably an alcoholic or something. That's arrogance. Do you know what a humble person thinks about when they see that person? They see that person and they think, wow, that could have been me. They say, God, they think, God, have mercy on that man. And then they think, God, is that my neighbor? God, what do you want me to do? What, how can I show mercy to that person? And they, they just want to do God's will. There's a big difference, isn't there, in your attitude, in the way you look at yourself and your wealth. Then the apostle says, use your wealth to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And what this tells us about our lifestyle is that we as the church are not just, we're not just called to do word ministry. Okay, we're called to deed ministry. The church is not just equipped and sent to preach the gospel. That is, that is the the thrust of everything that we do. But we are also called to live the gospel out, to obey the gospel, to display it through tangible acts of mercy and love to people. That's how we're to use our gifts and to use our wealth. When we read about generosity here, we need to know that God is talking about financial generosity. That is the context here, okay? God wants us to be generous with our money and so that we can experience his life. This is not talking specifically about being generous with your time and your gifts and your skills, as important as all of that is. But here's what you need to know, okay? If you're a person, there are people who are very generous with their time and very generous with their uh, homes or very generous with their skills. And they're, they're giving hours to the church to build up the church every week but they're not generous with their money. Because they're using, or they might be using all of their generosity in these other categories of their life to justify holding on to their money. Because that's what's maybe precious, that maybe they love it. And God is saying, we need to live with whole life generosity there's no area of our lives, especially our finances, that, is, that does not come under God's authority. That's why Jesus talked about money as much as he did. Because he knows how money can steal our affection and our desires and our dreams. And then the apostle uses this word, this phrase, be ready to share. God says, be ready to share. How can, how can you be ready to share? Well, this is a matter, really, of simple math. If you're making just enough money to pay your bills, how can you be ready to share? I mean, you can't be. If you, the question is, how much disposable income do you have? That's what this is about. We have to have plenty of it to be able to obey this command. I mean, if you add up all of your bills and expenses... And financial obligations at the end of the month, and it's taking up over 90% of your gross income or your, or your take-home pay. There's not a lot of financial margin in your life. And if you believe the gospel, there will be a growing gap between how you could live and how you do live. 
We are called to work hard and to live simple lives. We're called to be generous. And not just generous, but radically generous. Because that's who God is. He's a radically generous God. And that's what I want, that's what I want to leave you with this morning. It's just, just, just the person and character of God. I mean, what do you believe about God? I mean, I could have spent plenty of time this morning throwing numbers at you and, and using statistics or stories just to, just to prove how rich we are and how poor most of the world is. Pastor Scott and I were at a conference, uh, not this last week, but the week before, and we got to experience for just a few minutes what the life of a Syrian refugee is like right now. There are millions, uh, there's something like 13 million Syrian refugees who've been displaced because of violence in their in the country that they call home. But statistics don't change lives. They just don't. In fact, the Bible does not motivate us through guilt. I mean, Paul doesn't say in this text, hey, you guys who are rich, you have so much more than everybody else. What's wrong with you? He doesn't, he doesn't talk like that. We're motivated not by guilt, but by grace. It's by grace. There's a couple times in this passage where we're told that God is a radical giver. God gives life to all. God richly supplies for all of our needs, everything to enjoy. It's just who he is. He loves giving his best stuff away. And I want you to see what the gospel of wealth says. The gospel of wealth which we read about in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. And this is what it says, you know, that the, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Do you know what that means? It's talking about Jesus. And it means that Jesus had everything. Jesus Christ, who's existed from eternity past, the God-man, he lived in his Father's presence in glory. He had everything. He lived in perfect harmony, in perfect relationship, in perfect union with God. He had all the glory and all the power and all the wealth, all the authority, all the joy. And he left it behind. He left it all behind. He became a man. He took on flesh. He felt tired. He felt hungry. He felt pain. He felt anxiety. He felt pressure. He felt oppression. He felt sorrow and grief and sadness and anger. He felt the whole gamut of emotions that we do. In Philippians 2 we read that Jesus did not consider Equality with God, something to grasp, something to cling on to. Instead, he set it aside. He set it aside so he could go to the cross, fully man, fully God, and be our substitute. He became poor. He had nowhere to lay his head. He became poor for us on his way to the cross, and then he gave everything. He gave his life, he gave up his body to be crucified so that you and I could enter in to the wealth, 
that he always had. In the presence of the Father, in the glory of the Father, experiencing the power of the Father. And one day that's where we'll be, in God's presence with no sin. And no guilt and no shame. We'll be experiencing God's glory unfiltered. That's wealth. That's, that's wealth according to Jesus. Do you think that God is a stingy God? I mean, if you're not generous with your money, I can almost guarantee that you do. Because that's what this is about. Whatever you believe about God is going to impact the way you treat your wealth. We are in the business of changing people's minds about God. That's what we're here to do. We're here to change people's minds about God and change people's minds about the church. Christ's body. I've heard so many people over the years say things like, how much does it cost to go to your church? And at first I was so confused by that question. Like, what do you mean? How much is it? What kind of church did you go to? But what they're asking is, how much do you have to give to become a member? And, and these are people who are estranged from the church now. There are, are millions of people. In the, there are probably tens of thousands of people in this city who look at the church as an institution that just sucks the life out of you and just takes and takes and takes until there's nothing left. And so they couldn't handle it anymore and they left. They didn't care how guilty they felt. They just kept, and, and the, you know, whoever was preaching to them and asking them for money all the time was using guilt to get money from them and they just couldn't bear it anymore. How's that going to change? It's going to change through our generosity. As God's people. That's why we give. That's why we do what we do in our community. That's why we're doing a la carte in a couple weeks. That's why we give money away. That's why we're asking you to become radically generous people because God is on the move to redeem people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is, it's going to happen just as often through our generosity as it is through our preaching. You can't preach the gospel and not be generous. It doesn't add up. People have to see that your life is different. They have to see something in your life, in the way you treat your wealth especially, that causes them to praise God. And to ask, what is it about you? What makes you different? What hope do you have that allows you to live this way? This is a lifestyle we're talking about. A gospel-centered lifestyle. Have you ever seen a child holding on to, picture this, picture a child holding on to two carrot sticks and, and walking around in the foyer out there. If you were to go up to that child and hand them two cookies, what would happen? They would reach their hands out and try to grab onto the, maybe a two-year-old, okay? They'd reach their hands out and they'd realize they can't grab the cookies. So what would they do next? They wouldn't find a garbage can. They would just drop the carrots. That's what kids do. They just drop it so that whatever it is, they just drop it on the ground. There's no hesitation so that they can grab onto that thing that to them is more valuable. And to kids, cookies are precious. You know? And that's all God's asking us to do. That's all he's asking us to do. 
We have to let go of our money if we want to grab hold of God. It's your money or your life. Which do you love more? God is saying we can begin to experience eternal life now in the present by practicing gospel generosity. What's gospel generosity? It's radical generosity that is fueled by grace. By what God has already done for us in Jesus. In other words, we're not generous for generosity's sake. We're not, we're not good for goodness sake. We're not nice people. That's not how we want to be remembered. We give our best away so that we can get more of God. And so that we can live in the name of Jesus. And make his name famous. So that more and more people can come to know Jesus Christ. And be truly rich. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good gift that you give us. Even the simple things. The simple things in life, God. Food, clothing, friendship, a roof over our heads. These are things that so many people in the world do not enjoy right now. And God, we are thankful. We realize that without you, we are nothing. Everything we have is from you. Every good and perfect gift is from you, God. You've given us even the ability to work and to make money. And that is a good thing. And we want to say this morning that we are thankful. And we also want to ask you this morning, God, to stir our hearts by your love and your grace and your generosity. Free us from the love of money, God, from slavery to anxiety and greed. Set us free from worry and obsession over how much we make and how much we could make. And help us to focus more, Lord, on how much we could give and how much more life we could experience through just giving you our best, Father. Make us a generous church. Make us a radically generous church so that more and more people can know you as their God and Savior. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.